I'm James Gould, and this is The Recess Course. Today on the show, we're going to be talking mass casualty events. And we're lucky to have with us an expert in the field, Dr. John Armstrong. John is the Medical Director for Emergency Preparedness and Special Operations in the Division of EHS, which is Emergency Health Services. He's the Medical Director of Emergency Preparedness for Trauma Nova Scotia, an emergency physician here in Halifax, and Assistant Professor Dalhousie University, and a trauma team leader at the IWK. He is the master of disaster, as we call him. John, thanks for being here today. Thank you very much for having me and the very generous introduction. Thank you. Yeah, look, you know, we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about pre- single presentations. A patient comes in with some illness, they're critically ill, and, and how do we manage that? And how do we perform on an individual basis and on a team basis to accomplish treating those patients? And mass casualty events, I think, add an entirely different layer of complexity to the care of these patients and to you know the system at large. We're not dealing with just one patient, we're dealing with a mass of patients. And we're not just dealing with one team, but we're dealing with multiple teams and how those teams interact and interplay to accomplish caring for such a, a large group of people when resources are overwhelmed. I'm curious, John, just to get us started, how did, how did you get interested in such, uh, such a field? It's a good question. I guess it's kind of two prongs that got me to where I am today. The first was way back in undergraduate university. I'd actually did a, a history degree, but the concentration was in military and strategic studies. So I have uh, a reasonable background in studying conflicts, uh, both sort of international conflicts and domestic conflicts in various countries. So I've always had an interest in mass casualty events, whether that is, you know, from shooting, bombing, et cetera. So that's always kind of been in the background. And then during residency at Dalhousie, I was mentored by the sort of previous master of disaster, Dr. Carl Jarvis here in Halifax. He took me under his wing and the rest of history, I guess. Amazing. You did a master's in, in disaster preparedness, disaster medicine as well, did you? I did indeed. I did the European master of disaster medicine, which is out of a uh, university in Italy, the uh, University of Eastern Piedmont. Um, and that's in Novara, Italy, and they have a joint degree with, um, the, uh, free university of Brussels. Now I got a couple questions about that. So, uh, number one, what do you think the biggest thing that you took away from that experience and, and that education was as it relates to disaster medicine? And then, and then what was your thesis on? Yeah. My thesis was on willingness to respond, looking at various sort of scenarios. So this has been done previously um, in other contexts, but I wanted to look at our institution here in Halifax. Um, so I was really looking at a baseline of, would you be willing to respond in a mass casualty event that was fairly benign, sort of a mass, um, like MVC or something like that. Um, and then comparing willingness to respond rates from that to large natural disasters in our case, uh, hurricane, and then looking at more insidious things like biological or chemical situations. And, you know, my results followed the previous literature, which really showed that most people are willing to show up for mass traumas during mass natural disasters. People are less likely to show up more so for reasons of having to be with their family and sort of take care of their own home, which is completely understandable. And then as you get into chemical and especially biological hazards, the concern of people not wanting to be exposed to those things sort of starts to count. So that was, it was really just a, a big survey of healthcare providers here in Halifax. Nice. It's interesting. And it's probably why you see a lot of people coming in from, you know, systems of care outside of where the natural disaster has happened in order to provide aid and see that less often, obviously, in the context of, of a mass trauma event, because there's probably a lot more providers available within the, within the system where that has happened. Totally. Um, and then, you know, less, less personal risk due to even just the perception of contamination. And if it's a mass, you know, an MVC, for example, as long as you weren't in the MVC, the rest of society should be running as it would normally function. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, the big takeaway from, from that for me was that the biggest barrier to people showing up is certainly not, you know, concern for their, their for themselves, that people aren't scared of things. It's more that they need to take care of pets, elders, and children. 
So that's an important thing to think about when um, you're looking at responding, especially here in Nova Scotia, if you're looking at responding to severe weather events, trying to figure out how can and can you as a health authority deliver on-site childcare services for your staff. Mm. Big thing to yeah. think about beyond just dealing with the clinical aspects. Mm. I suppose from my experience in Novara, I guess the biggest thing at the time, the course ends with a very, very large mass casualty simulation with hundreds of live patients. Very well done, very realistic. And from that experience, it's what I take away, you have to be prepared and not just for the disaster clinically, you have to be prepared to make challenging clinical decisions about which casualties are quote unquote, worth the resources to resuscitate and which ones aren't. And you also need to prepare to have people in your organization adopt significant leadership uh, roles with all the responsibilities that those entail. Being, bringing order to chaos is, is really the, the number one takeaway and the clinical aspects will fall into place. I mean, your clinical teams will know how to treat patients in front of them with the resources they have. It's more making sure that your teams are aware of what's going on and are comfortable tackling it in potentially more austere situations. Yeah, that's well said. And I'm sure that throughout this uh, podcast, we're going to get a little bit more into that and how difficult those decisions are, you know, determining the resources that are going to be available and what patients will receive them. Before we get going, I, let's just provide the listener with some context. When you say mass casualty event or scenario, what are we actually talking about? Could you just define it for us? Sure. So a mass casualty event is simply any incident where there are a number of casualties that goes above and beyond what your system's capacity to absorb is. And there is no hard number because that will be very different or every health system, for every emergency department, for every surgical service, and certainly for the geography of where the event happens. Um, it's more, you know, it when you see it in a way, but conceptually it's simply more casualties than you are able to care for in a conventional way. Could you give us some examples? Like let's, let's assume we're working in a peripheral hospital or an emergency department with single coverage overnight, maybe three nurses versus a tertiary care center. Like what would yeah. a trauma, like what would overwhelm each one of those two examples? So, I mean, my clinical experience is only at the latter. I don't do any work in very small regional centers, but I mean, realistically, I think anyone who does work in a center like that, who's listening right now would probably say two, you know, two sick casualties who would be requiring sort of level one or level two ORs would almost certainly overwhelm that environment that you've described. Because even with everyone, I mean, the whole team, you have one doc and three nurses, they're going to be able to manage one casualty. The second one really has nobody looking after them, um, unless you split into two teams, one of a physician and nurse and one of two nurses, that's going to be outside a lot of scope of practice for those uh, practitioners in some cases. And then everyone else in the emergency department in that scenario is sort of left hanging, right? There's no scalable crew to manage the incumbents. So even with just two sick people, I think the first scenario would be overwhelmed. And I think for that, that department that would be a mass casualty event. They would need to draw in extra resources to appropriately handle. With the tertiary care center, I think a lot of it these days depends on how backed up the department is. I mean, do you even have beds to resuscitate people in? So it's certainly easier. I mean, at our institution in Halifax, we have a dedicated trauma team. They can certainly do resuscitation on one critically ill patient. The number of people on the trauma team combined with the rest of the folks in the department, you could probably grab together three or four recess teams with, with the people you have in the department without calling in additional support. Mm -hmm. So, you know, during a weekday, middle of the day where two shifts are overlapping a handover, I think the, the second scenario would be, you know, able to handle three or four sick patients, but it really yeah. depends on how the rest of the department is looking. Yeah. So, so there's again, no real hard, hard and fast number. It's kind no, of like you said, you know, you know, I'm going to see it. it. 
And I mean, I think when we're having this discussion, you know, we unfortunately don't have uh, a surgeon here, but representatives from your surgical departments, they will be able to weigh in on what is their actual capacity. You know, how many ORs can be opened quickly? How many anesthesiologists do you have? What's your pack you like? I mean, these are also things that really impact your ability to handle for mass traumas. Yeah. You can have mass casualty incidents that are medical, of course. So chemical exposure, carbon monoxide exposure. So those are mass casualty events, but without the need for definitive surgical care. And those are a little bit different. Right, right. In terms of, you know, taking it a step farther in terms of defining this, there's some nomenclature that's used for sort of describing a mass casualty event. The PICE or PICE, would you say it PICE? Is that how? Yeah, PICE, potential injury causing event nomenclature. So from a clinical point of view, I would not get super bogged down in PICE nomenclature. It's really an aid for the disaster medicine community to describe events using common definition. It's really sort of three prefixes looking at whether or not events are static or dynamic, controlled, disruptive, or paralytic, and then sort of where they fall geographically, whether they're local, regional, national, or international. And then the event is staged at a level zero to three based on how much need or how much need there is for external aid. It's still a little bit nebulous uh, because when you say outside aid, does that simply mean from the next geographical level up? So if it's a local event, but it's a pipe stage three, that might say you need a large outside aid coming from, for me, the most important parts are really the, the prefixes and really whether or not it's dynamic or static. So a dynamic mass casualty event is one where the total number of casualties is not yet known because whatever the process is, is still ongoing. And then whether or not it's disruptive or paralytic to the greater society that you're in. So you can have things that are static, but paralytic. So a very bad winter storm, for example, could be paralytic, you know, no cars can get on the roads, but it happened. And in a way it's over where if you look at something like an active shooter, uh, that's more of a dynamic situation where as hospital systems are gearing up to respond. There's really a lot of unknowns as far as what the casualty situation will be like. So again, from a clinical point of view, you know, when you're the incident commander sitting in your merge, PICE is not overly helpful, but it's a good way to look at events and kind of think about how they'd be categorized. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about, you know, what you actually need to manage this type of scenario. So tell us what the critical items required. Yeah. So when you think about the critical substrates of disaster response, uh, the easiest way to remember them is to think about the three or four S's, um, which would be your staff, your supplies, your space and support. The staff, pretty self-explanatory. You need clinicians to care for patients. Uh, you also need non-clinicians to care for patients. When we talk about supplies or stuff, the second S, we're really talking about the supply that you're going to burn through while taking care of patients. And that can be sort of simple things like suture trays, procedure trays. It can be the number of chest tubes uh, or water seals that you have. It can also be blood and blood products. And then lastly, we talk about space. So where do you actually put all of these people? And will that have to spill over into non-clinical areas or areas that are clinical, but perhaps not used for emergent or urgent cases? The fourth S, which is sometimes added on, is support. And that's really talking about logistical and administrative support. So making sure that you have the admin backup to help move things through your hospital system. In terms of stuff, you know, all the equipment that's required, you kind of walk through some of those things. Um, you've put together a cart for us in our department, the sort of the, the code orange cart is how mm -hmm. it's labeled. Do you want to talk briefly about that right now and describe sure. what it is and, and what's in it? Absolutely. So having a special code orange cart, I think is important because a lot of hospital supplies are done by just in time delivery, um, which is an excellent and streamlined way to run a hospital system during conventional care time because you don't need to spend any money on storing stuff in warehouses. 
And you also have less loss to ex expiry because you're going through stuff. And as soon as you're about to run out, truck arrives and you get more equipment. Problem with that is that many health services who rely on just-in-time supply will not have really any large amount of backup supplies. So for me, I felt it would be helpful to have the sort of safety and knowledge that we do have a small stockpile of equipment that would be likely used in a, a mass casualty event where you have uh, traumatic injuries. So the mass casualty cart that we have at uh, QE2 in Halifax is really designed for the walking wounded. So it's a lot of fairly simple wound management equipment. So suture trays, staplers, sterile gauze, non-sterile gauze, various types of wraps, pressure bandages, tourniquets, splints, IV starts, simple sort of crystalloid. And ultimately we're going to get a little bit of PO analgesia as well on that cart once that gets processed through pharmacy. Yeah, that's awesome. It's tremendous work on that, by the way. You know, I want to talk a little bit about how you organize a team to manage all of this, and, you know, beyond just the organizational structure of a resuscitation team at the bedside, but more, you know, the whole system of care operating in an emergent context like this. How do you, how do you arrange that? How do you organize that? Yeah, I guess my first question before I comment, do you mean within the overall hierarchy of the entire health system? Or do you mean within the ED and immediate withdrawal during a response? Oh, uh, that's interesting. Let's talk about both. Well, let's start with the, the broader system level, and then we'll focus down a little bit on, on what, you know, happens at the individual emergency department level. And, and yeah. So the broader system level is a, a much harder nut to crack. Essentially you're looking at ways to communicate between hospitals within either single or multiple health systems when you're dealing with potential events that would require patients to be sent to various institutions. Within Nova Scotia Health, we do have a sort of senior director for emergency preparedness who reports to one of the VPs of the organization and reports to the uh, president or CEO of the organization. And that administrative side is really important for logistics and for sort of getting the emergency operations center up and running within Nova Scotia Health as an organization. And so having senior administration online and sort of available during a mass casualty event gives the clinicians a little bit more, I guess, as far as having to move patients around or having to do things that may not quite be your standard of care. Uh, because you have that backup from the admin side uh, immediately. As far as working between institutions, that is challenging. And that's actually a project that the Trauma Nova Scotia is working on right now is trying to get the different sites communicating and trying to develop a provincial response um, to a mass casualty situation. When you talk about how to organize response within a single center, I always fall back on the incident command system, which has been around since the 1970s and is a very internationally uh, used and respected way to have civilian command and control outside of the sort of traditional hierarchies of the military. The incident command system is a very modular and expansive way to organize your staff. So that's certainly what we do at the QE2 if a mass casualty event were to occur. And what you really need is someone who's in charge, the incident commander, and then your clinical and sort of non-clinical operational units organize themselves within that hierarchy. What does that mean on the ground? It would mean essentially that under your incident commander who's running the entire event, not solely in the emergency department, but across all the other parts of your hospital system. So your hospitalist, your internist, your surgeons, your PACU, all of that stuff. And then you have an operational sections chief who's managing under them the different branches and divisions of your response. And that would include sort of the surgical aspect as well as the EV aspect. So having all the people then reporting up to sort of the chain of command just allows that incident commander and your ops section chief to know what's going on and what's available. 
So I would say you have a chance, you should look up IC100 if you haven't already and try to take that course. Perhaps we can include that in show notes. I think there's a number of organizations who offer those courses for free. And I think it's important for anyone who works in a hospital to be aware of ICS. And certainly ICS 100 is a very short online certification that will give you a little bit of the language and to understand how it works. Nice. You started this conversation, you know, mentioning that one of the difficult parts about mass casualty is, you know, sometimes the resources available are just overwhelmed and, and you have to make decisions and difficult decisions at that in terms of who gets those resources. I'm interested in just sort of your description uh, of how the philosophy of care changes with this patient population. Mm-hmm. I've heard you refer to it before as the care continuum. And mm-hmm. what what is it you know, kind of, you know, what that looks like in terms of how care differs between these patients and, and what we're used to? Yeah, and I, I think I'd have to put the caveat that it's not necessarily just the patients from the mass casualty event. Um, when you start moving from conventional care to contingency care to crisis care, and that's kind of the continuum, it affects everybody and it affects everybody even beyond the temporal limitations of the event. So what I mean by that is if you are having such a large event that you're shutting down ORs and you're admitting people to hallways, upstairs, you're taking over clinical space. That will affect people who are getting cancer surgeries, you know, orthopedic procedures, outpatient clinics. So the ripple effects can be quite profound as the healthcare, as the healthcare system is pushed beyond conventional care. So we, we look then at the continue, the continuum of care itself. Conventional care is what we do every day. And that's where all resources are thrown at any patient you see. You know, full resuscitations, no hold barred. When you get into contingency care, that level of care is still the goal, but sometimes it will be done slower than we'd like. So you may see significant delays in care and you may see people expanding their scope slightly. When you reach crisis levels, you're going to be providing care in places that you normally would not consider. So moving into entirely non-clinical spaces, whether that's waiting rooms, cafeterias, you know, really outside of where we would all be comfortable treating patients. And you're going to see that the people providing the care are going to really be pushing the limits of their scope of practice and their, in their comfort zone as far as what they're doing. So you could certainly have non-clinicians assisting with wound care. You know, people are, they, you run out of ventilator you may have people bagging patients who have no medical training at all, family members may be helping take care of patients. And that's a huge jump from what we're used to. Similarly, once you reach crisis, you really need to start thinking about secondary assessment of victim endpoints or save triage, kind of an internal triage once you have patients in your department. And that really splits patients into three groups. There are people who will survive without doing anything. Um, and they may not survive without comorbidity, but they'll, they'll survive. You also have people that will not survive regardless of what you do. And it's, it's impossible to define that, but I think clinicians listening to this podcast will all sort of know in their head when patients are somewhat beyond the pale and what interventions that we do in a conventional setting may be more honestly for the benefit of family members of those patients than to the patients themselves. And so in crisis, those patients cannot use up the limited resources you have. So the sweet spot or intervention are the patients in the middle, the people that will survive if they have appropriate resources dedicated to them. So that's the save score. Is that a score? Like, is it like, are they a one, two, three? And is it something you apply at the door as patients come in from a triage perspective? Just ha- logistically, no. how does that save score work? So certain institutions will have their own internal sort of algorithms for what that means. And it can vary based on the mechanism. So you could look at head injuries uh, and you can sort of look at, you know, what is the patient GCS? Do they have reflexes? And a lot of this is clinical and not relying on imaging because in a crisis, you probably don't have imaging. 
If you're looking at burn patients, it could be the total combined uh, body surface area. So there's no single scoring mechanism for this. It's really gestalt and clinical experience. And it's up to each center to derive their own thoughts on this. And I think a lot of health systems had an experience of this during COVID. So not for mass casualty, but for deciding who would get ventilators. Mm. Certainly in sort of the first and second wave when that was a major issue. Uh, a lot of ICUs had their ethicists and sort of medical legal experts go through this and decide how can we fairly come up with ways to triage who gets ventilators. And it's similar in crisis care in a mass uh, casualty situation where you really need to think, okay, how can we apply a fair system to give people resources? And again, that you need to always consider the person who's happened to have a STEMI at the same time as some, you know, terrorist bombing happened, who is more deserving of care, you know, just because you happen to be at the site of a improvised explosive device going off doesn't necessarily mean that you're more deserving or less deserving of scarce resources as someone who happened to have a myocardial infarction at the same time. Yeah. Great point. That's always tricky and it, it's hard to digest as a clinician because in the case of a mass casualty situation where I think all clinicians are going to be wanting to participate and care for the people from that event. But you can't forget that you do need to still do your triage on all of your incumbents. You know, I mean, the mm. person with sepsis, the person with delirium, they're still in your department and they still need care. So trying to figure out where they fall, I mean, who deserves more resources, the septic person or the triage yellow person with an open fracture. Logistically, John, who, who decides that? Cause I mean, you know, is it the incident commander? Cause I could imagine from a human factors perspective, when you have multiple, you know, providers show up and it's obviously chaotic, everyone wants to help. If you had too many people trying to make the decisions of, you know, who could survive if they received intervention you know, there's going to be a difference of opinion between different people. And, and ultimately, if there was one person just making that decision, despite the fact that, my gosh, that would be, you know, a heavy burden to bear, it might actually make things a bit more efficient if it's one person. Is it? Or how, how would that go? So I think if you, if you try to put that on the incident commander, they're going to be so busy wrangling all the other aspects of this, of this event from an administrative point of view. The incident commander probably, in my opinion, should not be making those clinical decisions. Okay. If we were to imagine a case where you had a surgical mass casualty event, so something with a lot of penetrating or blunt trauma, I would say for doing your save triage, having a senior surgeon and say an intensivist do round themselves and look at all the patients would be the best way to do it. And, and the incident commander's job would be more designating who that person's going to be, like who's the most Correct. appropriate person exactly. to, to, exactly. to sort of start walking around and making these yeah. decisions. I think what is important is that when you realize you're in crisis care, the incident commander needs to declare that and mm -hmm. have to let that be known to all the clinicians that things are now beyond our capacity to provide the standard of care we're used to, and it needs to be documented that ultimately after any horrific event, the sort of post-mortem is going to be long and it's going to be intense. And so having it very clear that, you know, at 9.53 PM on such and such a date, the incident commander, based on all the clinical evidence that they had in front of them, sort of said, okay, we're now in crisis care. Mm. And that's important from a care point of view, because it gets all the clinicians on the same page. It's also important really sort of administratively and medical legally. They, you know, we had to make hard decisions and we acknowledge that this is why. Yeah, my gosh. Well, let's, let's go back even a few more steps. So we've talked a little bit about what might happen at the hospital level. What happens in the field, like when this happens? So, you know, let's imagine some terrible event has happened. We'll use the example of, of, a, of a mass shooting. And there's a large number of patients that have sustained surgical type injuries. Just describe to us how this unfolds from the, from the moment that begins um, to the, the triaging of the patients on scene by, by providers and, and how they do that. Yeah. So as you can imagine, there's a very broad range of responses, really taking into account 
geography. So where did the event happen in comparison to where your resources are? How expansive or available your pre-hospital providers are is a big deal. The distance to tertiary care centers, the number of people who are uninjured and able to help on the scene, those all play a big role. So if you consider the examples of, say, the Boston Marathon bombing or the Las Vegas Country Music Festival shooting, in both of those cases, a lot of patients left the scene under their own power before they could be triaged at all. Because in those situations, they were in the middle of major urban areas and there were a lot of people around that were able to get those patients into private vehicles, you know, the back of trucks, the back of uh, police cars, and driven to uh, local hospitals immediately. And that's very different from, say, there was a case of a major bus crash in uh, Saskatchewan in Canada that happened in a very rural and remote part of the province. And in that case, all transport was really done by pre-hospital providers, but over a very prolonged period of time. It took so long to get, you know, even sort of air medical critical care paramedics to the scene and back and forth was a significant flight time. So those factors all play a role. The big issue with our system, and I'm sure many systems around the world, is there aren't enough transport vehicles in a mass casualty event to move people quickly to definitive care. And so what's going to happen on scene is you're going to have triage and then transport triage. So you may end up having, say, six triage red patients, 10 triage yellow patients, and 30 triage green patients. Of the reds, who needs to go first? And so that's, that's sort of something that your medics on scene are going to look at and go, okay, this person is the most sick. And so they're going to go first. You mentioned red, yellow, green. For the listeners who aren't familiar with that triaging system, can you talk a little bit about, about that? I think you're probably talking about start triage. Yeah, start triage, salt triage, 10 second triage. Most triage sieves tend to categorize people as red, yellow, or green, or priority one, two, and three. And then there's a fourth triage status of black or expectant, which is for patients that are either dead on scene or no unlikely to survive that they would not benefit from transport. So all of those triage thieves usually use a combination of what you can see and also physiological things you can measure to decide whether or not, or you, so you can decide the acuity of, of the patient in front of you. So for start triage, which is one of the most used, certainly in our jurisdiction, but also around the world, you really look first, can the patient walk? If they can walk, they're automatically triage is green or priority three. And that's really because to be able to walk requires a fair amount of coordination and blood pressure. So if you're able to walk, it's a good sign that you're not so critically injured um, that you need to be. On the other side of that are the priority one or red patients. And in the context of START, uh, those are people who are not ambulatory and who are either unresponsive uh, to Kipnik or you are unable to find a good palpable pulse or they have a prolonged capillary refill time. And so anyone that looks like that would be a, a priority one or a red triage patient. And then everyone else falls into the yellow category. Uh, if you look at other types of triage, whether it's salt triage or 10 second triage, they'll give you the same colors, but just in slightly different ways. Nice. So. And logistically, we have sort of the paramedics or whoever's on scene would have actual tags that they'd put on these patients. Is that right? Like I'm imagining a scenario where you've got, you know, 30, 40 people injured in, in, in say, a, a certain small area. Logistically, how are they sort of identifying these people? Yep. So our paramedics have triage tags. Essentially one tag goes on the patient and with that tag, there's a, a barcode and a barcode sticker and the sticker peels off and goes on. Uh, a sort of a laminated card that comes with all the triage tag so that uh, whoever's doing the triage or the head of the triage team can keep track of exactly how many patients you have triaged, And then hopefully your numbers roughly match up to the number of people that actually get seen in the hospital. It's also important to re-triage people. So folks who may have been green at one point may turn into yellows or reds and certainly yellows can turn into reds as well. It's less likely to down triage people. 
We're going to talk in a few minutes here about something that you call empiric resuscitation. But I'm interested, what do you think the limits of pre-hospital care are in the scenario that I described to you here? So obviously there's there's only so much that can be done pre-hospital in a conventional setting. And I imagine that changes when you've entered sort of more crisis care and mass casualty events. In your opinion, what do you think should be done at pre-hospital by a pre-hospital yeah. provider? So if you're looking at uh, surgical mass casualty events, you obviously need to take into account what the scope of practice is of your paramedics and medical first responders. But ultimately, anyone who is very sick from penetrating trauma typically needs definitive surgical care, and that's what will save their life. So the most important thing is transport triage and getting the thickest patients out as fast as possible. As far as what medics can do on scene, it's fairly limited. You can open an airway, you can decompress a chest, you can bind a pelvis if there's blunt trauma or suspicion of a pelvic fracture. And that's, that's kind of the limit. I mean, you could tourniquets, I guess. Yeah, tourniquets, yeah, of course, stopping any observable bleeding. So yes, tourniquets, wound care, over and above that, getting IV access would be helpful. Certainly medics can give tranexamic acid. So doing that would be something that you could start uh, pre-hospital. But blood products and finger or tube thoracostomies are only in our system deliverable by critical care paramedics. Awesome. What, what you don't want to do somewhat counterintuitively is you don't want to start intubating people because you can't. You don't have enough hands. So if you say, okay, you know, one of your four paramedics on scene for that huge number of casualties is now stuck bagging a patient and providing oxygen to them, it's taken out a quarter of your, of your response for one patient. Right. So, so if you look, if you look at all those triage CUs, yeah. whether it's all start or a 10 second triage patients who are not breathing on their own, even with sort of opening the airway, whether that's with an NPA or a jaw press, they're not breathing on their own they would be triaged as expectant. Right. So logistically, you do the jaw thrust and they, they do start breathing. You just, you put the oral airway in, the nasopharyngeal airway, try to kind of create and splint an airway. And if they continue to mm -hmm. breathe spontaneously on their own, then be a red. That, be a red. that's a red. But you're not going to do things like put in an eye gel, use a BVM respirator. Like they need to be breathing on their own and yep. supporting themselves in order to be considered a red and not an expectant. Correct. And that's wow. a, that's a really hard thing to do because we're all trained to not walk out. Yeah, of course. Ah, oh, it's so difficult. All right. Well, let's imagine that you're at the bedside. Now you're one of the physicians caring for patients that are rolling in. I, I want to talk a little bit about what you call empiric resuscitation. We'll use this example of, of penetrating illness, you know, recognizing that there's lots of medical mass casualty events, but we'll focus in on, on the surgical aspect of things. We'll say, sort of a, a penetrating type trauma, whatever that is. And the patient has arrived to you or multiple patients have arrived. Talk to us a little bit about sort of the highest yield interventions that you can do at the bedside for these massive patients in what you call empiric resuscitation. Yeah. So when I thought about this, I was thinking to myself, I mean, in our institution, I think having more than four sick patients would absolutely overwhelm us and would be a code orange. And if, you, if I were in that situation in crisis care mode, what can be done to patients with penetrating trauma when you really don't have any ability aside from, you know, maybe, you know, if you're lucky enough to have one of the ultrasounds in the department, focus. I mean, otherwise your, your ability to do diagnostics is extremely limited. So what could be happening that you could actually fix to buy those patients time to get to an operating room? And so it's sort of a continuation of what available on scene by our free hospital professionals. So you want to make sure that any massive bleeding you can see has stopped. Whether you throw a tourniquet on first and then downgrade, or whether you try direct pressure, hemostatic gauzes, et cetera, and then if that failed, be put on a tourniquet is up for debate. I had an opportunity to work with some of the, with the medical oversight director for the Canadian special forces and a number of their med techs. And, you know, from their point of view. If there's heavy bleeding, you put a tourniquet on it and then you worry about it later. Certainly our education in medicine is to sort of work your way up. I think you would go either way, but any massive bleeding that you can see, you're going to want to stop definitively. Opening the airway with an NPA or an OPA, if they're breathing, 
great. So that's sort of fixing that problem. Moving down the list, if there's any concern about penetrating trauma anywhere near the thorax, I think it'd be very reasonable to put in uh, bilateral chest tubes. Worst case, you've put a hole where there was no hole before, but a chest tube in and of itself put in correctly should not cause really much trauma at all that won't heal in a few weeks, you know, once you pulled that tube out. Getting IV access is important for resuscitating these patients, um, especially people with ongoing bleeding uh, in their pelvis or in their abdomen or in their chest. So IV access is important. IO access is great if you don't have the time. And then what can you do as far as drugs? Give tranexamic acid. You can give antibiotics to cover them. That's certainly not an immediate life-saving step, but it's something that can be done quickly for all these patients. And then we think about blood products, and that's going to be a real question from your secondary assessment of victim endpoint re-triaging, because you're going to have a very limited amount of blood immediately. Certainly small centers may have two to four units of blood at any given time. And even, you know, our large center does not have an infinite supply of blood and it can get used up very quickly. So blood products are important for patients that seem uh, like the they would be salvageable. Um, and then you want to give some adjuncts to that, aiming for that one-to-one-to-one or one-to-one-to-two resuscitation with platelets, plasma, and red blood cells. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, the blood product scenario? Like, I, I don't know exactly know how much blood we do have. How Do you have a sense of, in our tertiary institution, how much blood we would have available to us? Yeah. So I spoke with the head of the, the blood bank at the QE2. And at the Halifax Infirmary, which is our sort of trauma center uh, here in Halifax, Nova Scotia, we're limited to about 62 units of blood that's available immediately. Between all the sites in Halifax, there's about 160, but that will take time to move. That's a logistical problem, moving it from one hospital to another. Certainly, if this crisis was ongoing, CBS, which is the Canadian Blood Services, has a large depot just across the harbor in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, and they would be notified immediately um, if the local blood banks started having a lot of orders for blood. So usually, you know, within one to two hours during business day, you know, business time, you'd be able to really double or, or more the amount of blood that's available. But it's really in that first hour or two, you're going to have a fairly limited amount of uh, blood products. That's, that's pack cell. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, if you look at your platelets, there aren't very many at all. The HI had about 11 packs of platelets at any given time. And then the plasma is almost an afterthought purely because it takes so much time to get it prepared. So from when I last spoke to the head of the blood bank, I think we'd be able to get in theory for units of plasma thawed out in an hour, take about a half an hour for each unit and there are two warmers. But when you consider the time to get the product, make sure it's for the right person, thaw it out and then bring it down to the eMERGE, I think you'd be lucky to get two units per hour. And so if you're looking at dozens of patients who are needing blood products, the plasma is really not going to be something you're going to be seeing in a one, one delivery. It, this may sound like a really dumb comment and I apologize if it is, but you know, it, we only have two warmers. It sounds like to thaw plasma. We have mm-hmm. a number of blanket warmers here at the hospital. We've got an abundance of microwaves. I, I'm not saying that it's a safe thing to do. I don't even know if it's logistically possible, but we spent a lot of time talking about conventional care versus crisis care mm-hmm. and thawing plasma in, in, you know, conventional warmers seems conventional. Is there a crisis level intervention on plasma warming that, you know, might be an option in this scenario if we needed a lot more plasma than yeah. what could be provided? That's a very good question that I do not have the answer to. I mean, I suspect that if it takes a half an hour, there must be some level of, of specificity and expertise in doing that. Uh, yeah. It was just like a boiling water bath. I, I don't think it would take half an hour um, to thaw out the plasma. So it must be at a very specific temperature that prevents denaturing of the critical protein in the plasma that we want. Yeah. 
So I'm not sure blanket warmers would be good. And I suspect microwaves would certainly just give you a very bad soup. Yeah, it's probably not a good idea. Yeah, look, any any alternatives to to plasma? Like what about, you know, giving PCC? You know, what are some of the other adjuncts that we could use instead of instead of plasma? Do you, or do you recommend that in this in this empiric resuscitation? Well, I think if you're in conventional, you know, treatment, no, uh, I wouldn't say there's a great alternative. There is research that shows that giving prothrombin complex concentrate and fibrinogen is very helpful in surgical cases. So there's a lot of literature in cardiac surgery of using this as an adjunct or replacement to uh, FFP in preventing bleeding and rebleeding during cardiac surgery. PCC does not have all of the factors that you get with FFP. And it just, because it's a concentrate, it doesn't give you everything that you need. And certainly you'd have to add your own fibrinogen into it, but it does seem to be non-inferior in studies that looked at it for surgical cases. So is it a reasonable alternative? I think if you don't have anything else, it would be a good idea. Now, I mean, there's caveats there where people that have reactions to PCC, like HIT can happen, but if someone is bleeding to death and it's an option that may help their coagulation, I don't see it as being a bad idea. Again, within crisis care. Yeah. Yeah. So empirically, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, the other benefit of those products is that they're shelf stable. Mm. So, I mean, if they're in your building, you can bring them down to your resource area and start giving them. They don't take long to reconstitute. They can be given quickly. So there's time saving as well, which is really important in these patients. I'm going to do my best at summarizing what you've described as an, as empiric resuscitation. So to provide context, we're talking about, you know, this is obviously a red patient who sustained some kind of surgical injury and has come in and is re-triaged as being as sick as previously described. So, you know, they're still a red, they're hemodynamically unstable, and you're obviously strained in terms of resources. The interventions that you can do realistically is open the airway, pack wounds and apply tourniquets, bind the pelvis if you can, if you think that this could be, or if it is a blunt trauma, and then decompress the chest bilaterally. In terms of drugs that you can give, you know, you can give fibrinogen, TXA, calcium, pack cells that are available, and then, you know, plasma as it becomes available. Is that kind of the, the, the fair summary of, of the empiric resuscitation that all of these patients could get? Yeah, I would say so. And when you're looking at drugs, you could give two to four grams of fibrinogen, two grams of tranexamic acid, just give it once. That's been shown to be non-inferior to doing the sort of first bullet dose followed by a drip, and it saves you time. But again, you're looking at ways to stretch the limited number of teams and staff you have. So if you can find any way to avoid tying up lines, having to start drips, et cetera, that's always beneficial. So a single sort of fire and forget of two grand of TXA, you can give a unit of PCC. You want to make sure that if the patients have penetrating traumas, open fractures, you're covering them with some antibiotics. Again, giving them something that's dosed once a day, such as ceftriaxone or ertapenem, give it, and then you don't need to worry about it. Well, look, we've come to the end of the, of the podcast. And one of the big things that has struck me that I haven't really had the time to sit down and think about until we started to have this discussion is just the, the profound impact that something like this must have on, on providers. You know, the, the burden of these decisions in terms of resources would just be immense. And that, that's right from the incident command person to the, to the providers at the, at the bedside. I guess the last question that I have for you is just, is there any sort of research sort of description in the literature of, of number one, how people respond to this kind of stuff? Like what does the performance look like across the board or does that vary? And then just like the long-term sort of impact on, on providers from, from something like this. The short term people do their jobs. I mean, we're all trained to provide, you know, resuscitation care to patients. So I think people will show up and they're, they're going to do what they need to do. As far as long-term things go, you know, I'm not aware of literature that looks at that specifically. There may be some out there, but just sort of playing off 
the way we should respond to other major events is that you really do need to do some debriefing with your staff sort of immediately, but also in a delayed fashion so that people can digest what happened and kind of really have that, that retrospective look at things. Yeah. It's very important to feel mental health after dealing with such a traumatic event and having to make a lot of difficult decisions. But the concept of talking about it first and telling people that's part of the plan, just like front of neck access in airway, you know, you want to tell the room, this is what we will do if we have to do this. And setting that out up front kind of gives people that shot across the bow of knowing, okay, we may need to do something that we're not always super comfortable doing. I mean, it becomes part of the algorithm that you're going to follow when that patient comes in. And so for mass casualty management, you almost need to have that huddle up front and let everyone know we are about to embark into a place that none of us will be comfortable in, but we're doing it together as a team. And when we reach these decision points, this is how they will be made. Have everyone understand that. I think that does a lot to make experiencing those difficult decisions easier and kind of gets your entire team on the same page before you, before you walk into that situation. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Very well said. Very well said. You know, you know, I'm going to wrap this up with, with just saying that this is, you know, I think such an exceptionally important thing for us to talk about, especially where we work, John, because, you know, we may not have these events happen as often as in some other cities or some other countries. But it's important for us to talk about it, think about it, and plan for it because it becomes even more of a halo event for us, mm-hmm. something that hopefully I never experienced in, in my career. But if I do, it'll be probably one time. And, you know, I want to make sure that I really have a good sort of mental framework for how this should happen and, and what the most ideal way to manage that is because it's just going to be so rare that it almost makes it more important for us to, to talk about mm-hmm. and learn about. Absolutely. Awesome. All right, man. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for everything that you do. You put an exceptional amount of work into, you know, making sure that we as a, as an institution, as a province, as a system are prepared to accept and manage what is fortunately the, the rare, but um, devastating situations that are mass casualties. So thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye-bye.